You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome to Alpha, the city of a thousand planets. Alex, can you update us? I'd be delighted to. The Alpha station has grown 7% this year. And since it left the terrestrial orbit, it has traveled almost 700 million miles. Population? Almost 30 million. 3,236 species from the four corners of the universe live on board, pooling their knowledge and cultures. Over 5,000 languages spoken, not counting the various computer languages. Demographics? To the south are the submerged parts with 800 species living in all kinds of liquids, such as the peaceful Polong farmers who grow cobalt. To the north, we have gaseous lands dominated by the Azine Mo, whose extreme sensitivity makes them specialists in neurosciences and molecular components. They can build cells of any kind. To the east of them, the large colony of Omelites. They control information technology, finance, and banking. Finally, to the west, in a pressurized atmosphere, we have 9 million humans and compatible species. Home sweet home. Welcome, everyone, to the station of a thousand planets. I mean, the show of a thousand shows. I mean, the 602 Club. Uh, I am one of your hosts, uh, Matthew Rushing, this week. And uh, I say that because uh, normally I'm just like, the host but i i mean with this much representation of a thousand planets i had to have more than just me and so with me uh i am so glad to have him back uh and and mikey you and i seem to do these films uh, the kind of off the wall genre films uh because we did jupiter descending so thanks for coming back to do this i don't know if you'll ever come back after this one i'm not sure I certainly won't commit to things four months in advance anymore. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, that's that's sad, Mike. I can always <laughs> count on you too. Like um, that is uh, true. I do tend to over schedule uh, in the sense that, like, I schedule early. So uh, Mike was was awesome enough to jump on this one and uh, back again. I'm so excited to have Alice. You know, uh, we had a little bit of a drought there. You've been super busy, but we had you for Arrow and now you're back for Valerian City of a Thousand Planets. I will happily shake your hand at the airlock, sir. Happily shake your hand. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's that's very that's that's very humanly of you. Um, So. Before we dive into this one, um, I just wanted to remind everybody, you know, you can find all the shows that we do here at Trek FM online uh, at Trek.fm. We're also a feature provider there over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, while you're there, you know, it's, it's been a while. You hit the, the 602 cup with, with a star rating review. I also want to say a huge thank you to all the listeners. Five months in a row, the 602 Club has been over 10,000 downloads. 
And that's just because of you guys. So I just really wanted to say thank you. Uh, it, it means a lot to me, the fact that the show's been growing like that. Uh, and part of that is the the reviews we've gotten on iTunes, the people sharing in the show, talking about it in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners-only discussion group. If you'd like to join in that conversation with Alice and Mike and I and all the other listeners, go over to Facebook, type Babel into the search field there, or if you're on the website at trek.fm, you can hit discussion on any of our show page menu bars. Uh, we're on Twitter, Trek FM, and then, of course, we have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash trekfm. And last but not least, if you want to send in an email about the show, maybe you want to hear something, uh, want us to talk about something, or uh, you had something to share about the movie we watched recently, go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose a 602 Club, and that'll come straight to me and then any of the hosts that were on that week, so... Well, guys, this is uh, this is an interesting thing because, um, you know, for me, I I know Luke Benson mainly from the Fifth Element. That I loved the Fifth Element. It came out at just the right time for me. Had Bruce Willis in it. Uh, Ian Holm. I mean, it, uh, oh my gosh, why why is my mind blinking? Because he's so good. Uh, guys, help me out. Um, Gordon from <laughs> Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, talk? Commissioner um, Gordon. Uh, why can't I think of his name? Oh, oh my God. Why can't oh, I think of his name oh, either? He's the um, best actor ever. The best actor I know. ever. I'm um, leaving this in but just so that you all know that we aren't as smart as we all sound like I know. Sometimes. I, I, somebody um, needs to hit the IMDb really fast. Um, yeah. Um, but he also played Snape. Uh, not Snape. Uh, 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 series Black. Yeah. Uh, and so Gary Oldman. Oh, my thank God. You. Thank, thank you. you. That's right. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank the Lord we remembered. Thank uh, you. So, I mean, yeah, that movie just hit me at the right time. And um, th- there's been very few movies, I feel like, in sci-fi that have been that kind of like bold and outlandish. So when I saw the previews for Valerian, City of a Thousand Planets, I was super excited because I was like, okay, it's Luke Benson. He's going back to his roots basically with, you know, the fifth element I'm so excited to see this. Um, little did I know, it's also a comic, uh, a, a very famous French comic from the 60s. Uh, and so I just kind of wanted to ask you guys, that's that's kind of where I was coming from, like, uh, as my excitement level. Where were you coming from? Is this something you'd ever heard of? Or was it just kind of you saw the trailer and you're like, hey, that looks kind of cool? Uh, for me, I saw the the trailer and did indeed go like that's a very well put together trailer uh i want to see that movie uh and the it would it would flash up and it would it would say something like you know based on the groundbreaking uh, graphic novel of the century or something like that and i was like why the hell haven't i heard of this graphic novel before um so i did actually desperately try and uh go to my local comic book stores hit the library uh i tried to um acquire a copy of the graphic novel for myself before seeing the movie cuz that usually works better for me and i could not get my hands on a copy of it um so i did i did go in with with I will admit somewhat low expectations uh, to to see the film based on the uh, previews, which it was a very well put together um, trailer. I guess I should say trailer. That's that's that was my angle. On that, they just started releasing the comic books in English. It's the first time they've been translated. So uh, you can find volumes of them now. They did volume one, and I think it has the first three graphic novels. 
Uh, I saw it at a comic book store just the other day. And you can also find the uh, volumes on uh, Comixology right now. That's oh. where I got them. Uh, but you can get them available now in English. It's, it, it was actually the first time that they'd ever been translated into English. And so that's why us in the States haven't heard of these groundbreaking graphic novels because we hadn't had them in our language. And unless you spoke French, you weren't going to be able to read them. You'd just be able to look at the pretty pictures. So, uh, <laughs> What about you, Mike? Is this something that you had been aware of at all in, in comic books? Uh, or were you just like, hey, Luke Benson, that's cool. He's back. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the source material at all, but I did see the trailer, you know, that, that initial teaser. And I, I was very impressed by that. You know, it had that... Beatles uh, cover that 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 plays at the end of American Beauty, so you know they instantly got me on that one, and I, I thought that visually speaking, it looked amazing, and yeah, also I mean I I do like Luke Besson quite a bit, you know I mean, Leon of course mm-hmm. is is an awesome movie, and I was also a really big fan of uh, Lucy uh, that came out a couple years ago, so usually if if Besson has a new movie coming out, I'll go see it. And um, this one I, I was for sure going to see, but the trailer definitely did, you know, amp me up a bit. I was like, this looks really cool. And I guess the other thing that I saw uh, right before uh, this was um, when Spider-Man was released in Dolby, they had a little uh, preview thing where Luc Besson came up before the movie and he's like, hello, I'm Luc Besson and watch the first five minutes of Valerian. And, you know, we, we actually got to see the opening oh, of wow. the movie. And okay. I was like, this is amazing. Now I really can't wait to see this. So, um, so yeah, I, I, was, I was very excited to see, you know, Valerian um, going into it. See, and, and podcast listeners just saw how much more sophisticated Mike Schindler is than Matt Rushing. Uh, I just was calling Luke Benson, and you're like, Luke, Luke Besson. Besson. You have You have it perfectly down. Like, I'm just this, like, podunk, you know, uh, boy from Texas. Uh, Luke Benson. And you're like, Luke Besson. So much cooler. So much cooler. I just love saying his name because it's it, so French. It is so French. You're absolutely right. Well, from now on, we would just call him Besson. Um, and so... I, no, I'm I'm actually, uh, you know, I was right there with you guys. I was very ex- excited to see this. And, you know, I had read one of the graphic novels going in, and I read the other one today um, called Empire of a Thousand Planets, which this one's kind of loosely based on. And I, it is very loosely. He, there are some ideas that he takes, but he definitely kind of crafted his own story. And so, um, yeah, I... I I, I w- I'm an unabashed fan of, of The Fifth Element, and I felt like this was going to be very much akin to that. So going in, I was I was pretty amped up to, to see it. I, I really wanted this to be good uh, because I enjoy, like, off-the-wall sci-fi stuff. Um, you know, I love Star Wars. I love Star Trek. But it's nice to have something that's just completely bat bleep crazy when it comes to sci-fi and it's really not afraid to take it to the the utmost crazy level when it comes to imagination and i do have to say um that i think that this imagination station that we kind of go to uh luc besson really doesn't let us down in that sense I, i think this is the thing for me i had the most fun with in the movie because visually I mean, when they say a movie is a feast for your eyes, 
I, I think this one really is in that category to me. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, visually speaking, it is pretty amazing. I mean, that that first, you know, five minutes, you know, that, that we were just talking about, I think is stellar. And that entire sequence is just completely visual. There's no dialogue in it at all. And yet it conveys so much, you know, just through the use of, of a song and pictures. And, you know, obviously he's really good at sort of like creating, you know, these weird alien races and stuff like that. And he's obviously very good in terms of, you know, camera technique and, you know, color usage and all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a really beautiful looking movie. Um, yeah, it's a really beautiful looking movie. <laughs> So I um I it gets mixed reviews for me and in terms of the visual I think the CGI and the special effects are stunning. I do or I did really enjoy the the visualization of what I can only assume are the alien species that are represented in the the graphic novels. I loved the pearls um and how they were visually represented on film. Um but when we get down to the the real the quote unquote real stuff, the costume design for me, in stark contrast to the the CGI effects, t- to me honestly it reminded me when Johnny Mnemonic came out, and I was so excited to see Johnny Mnemonic because I'm a huge William Gibson fan, and I was like, oh my god, here it is, you know. Pretty soon they're going to do more William Gibson things. Like the future is now. This is going to be awesome. And it it looked like a bad 80s movie where they went shopping at the mall to get the costumes. And for me, I, again, with the, like the general's costume with all of the gears and stuff on it, and then the, I don't know what, I can't remember what it's called, when they go to the market that's not there, the, the dimensional yeah, market, yeah, what's that called? Yeah, the big market, yeah. Uh, I think it's just called the big market. The big market. Uh, A lot of those visuals, I was just like, why? Why isn't the why aren't the costumes on the physical level matching in awe for me the CGI effects? Because they just didn't. Uh, And I would say the same for the the cut piece sets. I was just like, it's not wowing me in the same way. There's too much of a difference. Like we're super wow over here, and then we're like "Eh," average over on the other side. It reminded me of Flash Gordon <laughs> oh. in the sense of the costuming. <laughs> like the costuming looks like Flash Gordon and yet we're in 2017 now. Um, and I get that Basson loves his very strange costuming. Obviously, if you've seen The Fifth Element, you get that. He he likes very weird costumes on his characters. This one yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you. The costuming and then the actual real sets, like the command center they're in and everything, feels so confined. Um, it it was very strange to me because the juxtaposition for everything else is so grand and glorious. When it felt like they were in a real set, it was it was very almost uninspiring. It was kind of strange. Uh, so I I really do agree with you on the on on. Specifically, the military costumes and um, the, um, the the sets where you, you you knew you were in a set, like the command center. Um, I did enjoy the costumes, like their spacesuits. I thought that yeah, was there were elements cool. that I thought were okay. Yeah. yeah, it just wasn't even. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely right to to say that. I I think that you're right in bringing up the fifth element, and to me, that was sort of like always like, in a way, the fatal flaw of the fifth element, which is that it is extraordinarily silly. You know, it's like no matter what the story is you're telling, no matter how it is you're telling it, like with the costume design the way it is, this sort of like super amped up, weird, you know, futuristic whatever. It's not, it doesn't feel like a real thing. It feels like something out of a comic book. And I don't mean that in a good way, you know? I'm talking about like the stereotypical comic book. And and this, I got the same impression. I mean, going back to that first scene, after seeing like some of the most amazing imagery I've ever seen in my life, then all of a sudden Rutger Hauer comes up and he's got an earring in his ear. And I'm like, okay, so this is what we're doing. All right, cool. Well, this is going to be fun. And then, you know, that's kind of like what we see. It's it's almost like I get the impression that that's kind of like his sense of humor. And mm. I don't think it's funny. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think if he were to, like, like you're saying, you know, Alice, make it consistent with the rest of the design the movie itself would play better because you wouldn't see that like super duper theatrical stuff, which would completely take you out of the reality, which he's working so hard to establish with all the other elements. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that the, the planet that we kind of start on uh, with mole and that alien race and everything, all of that's so consistently done. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's, it's incredibly thoughtful, imaginative design. You know, it's kind of like, uh, right. So we go from that to, to the two leads in like cheesy bathing suits in the, right. In the, in the ship that like there, it's just doesn't make visual sense to me. And it undercuts, it undercuts it. It makes you, I think what Mike's saying, it makes you kind of want to laugh, not in a good way. Yeah, no, and I, I, I completely agree, and and I feel like, I mean, so for me, it it worked in The Fifth Element, because I feel like the entire movie is like that, Ooh. whereas this one, I feel like, had that, it, it began with kind of this almost reality to it, you know, the, the, the city of a thousand planets starts off as a spaceship, uh, a space station orbiting Earth. That continues to grow and grow and grow and grow until the point where it's so big they have to push it out of Earth's orbit and then it just floats along its way, you know, through the galaxy. And so there's this whole kind of reality and then you're right, you kind of, like things start to get overly silly and it's like, but why are you doing that? Because, and I get that we're basing this off a comic book. Um, from the 60s and you know, having read it it can be silly mm. but i don't that those those two different gear shifts and mike i know you love gear shifts in movies but i feel not, like this not, gear not shift just doesn't work <laughs> yeah it, it it really doesn't and, and it's too bad because what's visual about this movie and kind of like i said this just feast for the imagination is so much fun in those places, you know, when you're just watching these incredible scenes, like when he is running through all the different 
areas of, you know, these thousand planets um, <laughs> through water, through, you know, zones that humans can't even live in. Like all of this, it just, it feels like um, an imagination fever dream. <laughs> uh, so I have that a question for you, Matt, then as somebody who's, who's read, seen, I guess some of the visuals that are represented in the graphic novel itself, uh, and you could share with us the name of the person who is the creator of that comic book. How much of it, um, how much of who, and I don't even know who Bissell hired to be the, um, uh, you know, the lead designer on the shoot, but how much of it looks like he is trying to represent what's actually in the graphic novel and how much of it seems like it's coming from Bissell's mind? The thing about the comic is think in your mind classic 1960s comic book and the visual style of that um, where everything's kind of heightened and crazy um, and I, I'm not even going to attempt to say the French names of the creator. <laughs> Fair. It's not my specialty. Um, but the look of it I wouldn't say that too many of the creatures really appear. He definitely kind of takes inspiration from the comic, but he does do very much his own thing. Let me put it this way. Have have either of you ever seen the Gold Key comics for Star Trek? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, any listeners that have, I talked about them on the literary treks a bunch. This has that same sensibility. It's, it's a 60s sensibility of comics, which is just outlandish, super crazy, yeah, so this is definitely in that mold. Uh, so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that it's just that this movie, it kind of was trying to almost seems like it wanted to play both sides. Mm. It wanted to be more serious, and then it was trying to also be this kind of like thing that felt like the original comics, and it's like you needed to choose one or the other. And I think if you had chosen just one or the other, it probably would have worked better in the end. You know, especially even for me, just because it would have been more consistent. Yeah, and I would imagine it's hard. You know, it's hard for I don't know if you feel this way, Mike, but it's hard. It's hard for me. I don't know anything about how these characters are supposed to be, and I definitely found myself uh, while I was watching it going like, "Hmm, I really wish I'd found that graphic novel and had had a chance to read it before watching this," because I feel like I'd be quote unquote getting it more. Um, uh, you know, because I know the American, you know, I know what Captain America is supposed to be like. I know what Iron Man's supposed to be like. I know what those characters are supposed to be like. And I just have no idea whether or not these characters are really being portrayed or presented in a way that they are in the comic or not. I mean, I just have no way to know. And I don't feel like the the movie itself gave me enough information or grounding to feel secure in understanding their presentation. Like I, I just was sort of, I felt like a float a lot of the time wondering like, really, this is how this character would behave. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't really, uh, I mean, I, I definitely see what you're saying about their, their presentation in the movie. And I, I guess my, my feeling is that, you know, however they are in the comic, like in some ways doesn't really matter in terms of, you know, what we're actually seeing in the movie. Like the fact that they don't stand on their own, I think shows like a failure in, in the film um, or in the movie. And, you know, I, I think that that's, that's a problem, you know, with, you know, the script and, and, and everything. And it really does feel like we're kind of like thrown 
into this situation, it feels almost like a sequel to a movie, you know? Mm. And their relationship, you know, is sort of like not really well defined from the beginning. And I think that there's some really weird things going on in terms of like uh, perspective and everything as well, which, you know, kind of like throws the whole movie out of whack. And at, at, at lots of times I don't know like whose movie this is supposed to be, you know? And I, I think that that is definitely... A problem, you know, and and also like aside from the two, I mean, I can kind of you know get into the story of the two characters, whatever you know, the two main characters, but like every peripheral character seems to be like so cliche in a lot of ways that I'm just kind of like, okay, we, we do we really have to go through the motions with Clive Owen here because we all know how this is going to end, you know what I mean? <laughs> For like the very first time he p- appears on screen. And yeah, I I don't know. It's they don't work too well <laughs> in my mind. And I can definitely say that from the comic, these characters don't feel the same as the comic book. They they have their own thing and their own like they're very uh, even the first comic they're very established. They are time traveling space cops basically. I mean that's what they are, uh, and that's their job. And I. I do think that, you know, as much as the great imagination and everything, the thing where this does kind of fail us is is that story element where it, it's really not super clear, um, like you said, what their relationship is supposed to be or what it was. And I think, Mike, you're kind of right. You do kind of feel like, did I miss a movie here? Like, was there like an original and this is the sequel? Like a th- the city of like a hundred planets <laughs> instead of a thousand, um, and so yeah, I I think you're you're absolutely right. But I also um, I wanted to ask you guys about this about the cast because for me, a good cast can find a way to kind of transcend maybe not the best script play, uh, the screenplay, right, right, and uh, and make it work like. Because they they add their own nuance to it. They they you know uh, the way they play it allows you to understand what's going on. Maybe in a way even that wasn't in the script. And you know, that's just that's just part of it. Uh, I always come back to the way in which I think Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford sold those characters in the original trilogy. Um, uh, just they they did it so that you immediately you know you snap your fingers, you got it, you knew who these characters were, and you were all you know you hit the ground running. Um, I kind of think you kind of need that for this type of movie too, where you're thrown into this very strange world. Um, and need you know, maybe when we'll talk about it a little bit the story and script. So, but what did you guys think of our main leads, Dane DeHaan and uh, Claire Delavine? I'm sorry, it's Cara Delavine. Um, yeah, I, you know, it, it was weird because I was sort of like primed to not like them you know going into the movie like i was talking about it with uh my my co-host marcello and he was like yeah i saw that movie the other day and you know everyone's talking about the leads being like you know really bad he's like i didn't see that you know i mean the thing that that he he said about uh is it Dane DeHaan? that's the guy's name yes he's like everyone keeps on comparing him to uh, you know, Keanu Reeves. He's got like a Keanu Reeves thing going on, he but I does. think he he really sells it. Like this is this is sort of like what 
what Marcelo said to me. And because of that, I think I was kind of like thinking about that going into it. And I'm like, I can go along with this guy's performance. I think that his character is, you know, kind of poorly written, but I think that he's doing a good job with what he has. You know, with with uh, Cara Delevingne, I thought that she was really good. You know, I mean, it, I've only seen her in a couple things, but it seems like every time I see her, she her her performance seems to kind of like rise above the material that she's given. And I, I was really sort of like impressed by her presence on screen and everything. And in, in a lot of ways, I was kind of like, at times I was like, is this her movie? Because like, that was one of the things which really kind of like surprised me when the credits, you know, rolled, as they said, like based on the comic, uh, Valerian and, uh, What's her name? Laureline, yeah. Laureline. And I'm like, oh, they replaced Laureline with a city of a thousand planets. That's kind of lame. And then I'm watching the movie and I'm like, this really should be called Valerian and Laureline because it really is. I mean, they share like equal time and they kind of like bounce back and forth. And there's like a big section of the movie where it just follows her and Valerian is like nowhere to be found, you know? And that was like my favorite part of the movie. Like I kind of couldn't care less about Valerian, but I was really into, you know, Loreline, I guess. And um that I, I thought that she was really good, you know? Uh I, I wouldn't say that it was surprising because I've been impressed by the other things that she's been in. I don't think I've ever seen um Dane Dahan. Is that's his name? Yep, I'm sorry. Dane Dahan, you got it. You got <laughs> okay. it. You're nailing it, man. You're nailing it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him in, in anything before, so I had no like frame of reference for, for, for him, but uh, he, he was fine, you know? I, I didn't have any problem with their performances. Oh, I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's, right. I mean, I, 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 I agree with you. I've, I, I have seen both of them in other things, and I liked them. Uh, just fine. My sense was that they were supposed to, and this may be me projecting, they were supposed to kind of have a relationship um, like the leads in Big Trouble in Little China. There, uh, there, there was supposed to be this witty repartee between the two of them. There was supposed to be this give and this tug and pull. You know, he's the, the major who's the straightforward military guy, and she's the sergeant who's just a little bit too clever for him and is a little bit smarter. Um, but I just didn't get that vibe between... But like that delivery just didn't happen. It felt it, it to me, it felt very stilted. Um, and in terms of their romance, I didn't get that vibe between them at all. Uh, and my son Ray, who saw the movie with me, described their relationship, uh, he's a big video gamer, as um, Link and Navi uh, from the Zelda series. And if you know that series, uh, Navi is the little fairy that comes out when you're lost and says, hey, hey, go here, do that, go over there, no, look here. And that's how he described their relationship. So um, I, oh, I, love that. I, I just didn't, I just wanted more from them. And I didn't know whether it was because the material was bad. Maybe they tried to do something different. And Luke Besson was very strict in his vision and he wanted it a certain way and they weren't allowed to do anything different. I mean, I just, it fell down for me and I, I don't know which piece of the production caused that. I just have no idea, of course. I would say I'm kind of in between both of you. Um, I, I kind of picked up, Mike, a little bit of what your friend was saying 
about his performance, uh, I didn't nail it as uh, Keanu-ish. But now that you say that, it's totally Keanu. Like that's the he, he has the same type of delivery. I felt like you know he could be you know in Bill and Ted's next big adventure, dude. Um, Very monotone. Totally just yeah, right. he could totally do that. It, 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 yeah, um, and I felt like he was a little bit better. Uh, Kara, I've you know. The only thing that I've really seen her in, I feel like, is uh, Suicide Squad, and she was fine. I had no problems. I mean, you know, she didn't have a ton to do. I mean, a lot of it just ended up being voice work for her uh, at the end, especially. So I think part of it was the script for both of them. The material they're given in this, the dialogue is, is the worst dialogue I've ever heard in a film. It's legitimately awful. Um, it, it sounds like the stuff that you would hear in the worst, and I mean the absolute worst of fan fiction written by a 10-year-old. Uh, that's what it sounds like. It, there's nothing like, like you were saying, this is supposed to be that snappy dialogue, you know, that it should feel like that 1940s uh thin man type of dialogue you know where it's just back and forth and like you could you, they're really vibing off each other and there's absolutely none of that and so i i because the dialogue isn't great that they're delivering i i don't feel like that the performances were there for either of them for me to kind of buy their characters um and and part of that is is just a, neither of them really truly found a way to transcend the material and I feel like bring an energy to it. Um, and their chemistry was a little bit strange. Like, um, and maybe that's just because the movie does immediately kind of drag them into a relationship, you know? Like, without any kind of setup or anything like that's why i feel like having the history with the comic book perhaps would have yeah, been helpful because yeah. you would have had some you would have come in with some no it wouldn't yeah. okay it wasn't I fair wish. enough <laughs> i wish um but no so yeah i'm 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 kind of in between you like uh, he was a little bit better for me she, i i was really actually disappointed in her performance but in the end i kind of feel like a lot of that was just that they don't have a lot to work with um I wish they had, they'd been able to... I don't just want to blame the script and the story. I, I feel like they could have just given better performances and it would have changed a lot of things. So, no, I mean, I definitely see what you guys are saying and I totally blame the material. I mean, like you're saying with their relationship, it's like, yeah, I mean, they literally start the movie by saying like, hey, we've been working together for like a pretty long time now. We should totally get married. And then it just goes from there and it's like this does not make any sense on any sort of logical level, like whatever you're dealing with in terms of any sort of emotion or anything like that when you're trying to get to the heart of this character is based on something which is absolutely crazy. So, you know, they've already got two strikes against them. You know, I mean, I guess I can kind of see, like I, I never ever consider this to be sort of like a Nick and Nora relationship, but now that you say that, I guess I can see like what you're talking about and I kind of wish that that's what it was and maybe yeah, that exactly. is Me what too. they were trying to be and if that's what they were going for, then they failed miserably. <laughs> I mean, on yeah, pretty much every level. I mean, but yeah. I guess I never, I never put, I, like I, I guess I was putting the bar 
like way lower, you know, and they then they cleared that as as performers, you know what I mean? Sure. Well, I'll just say that for me, like uh, uh, Nick and Nora is the pinnacle of that kind of relationship on screen. Like that's the thing that every other movie out there wants to be. I mean, if you're not the Casablanca type of relationship, you want to be the Nick and Nora type of relationship. And every romantic comedy has used them as the basis for their lead characters for, it seems like, forever now. And I felt like that's kind of the vibe they wanted to have. The material is just not there. And I do think, I do think, this is this is why I don't want to just, just blame the script, because you can portray that better. You can deliver oh, the yeah, dialogue better. Even if it's bad, you can do it in a way, as an actor, to sell the material. Yep. Um, and I don't feel like either of them did that well enough. Uh, part of it is, you're right, Mike, it's so stupid. Like, they... they in, instead of a like building up to him proposing or anything, it just becomes this thing where it's like right, oh, like ten minutes into the movie, he's already proposing to her, but you have no context for their relationship other than he's kind of a cad, and she kind of you can tell she kind of digs on him, but she's like not sure if he totally wants to commit yet, and that's just like what it's basically based on a virtual black book, little black book. Right, it's him with his playlist, so it's it's the virtual little black list, and her ultimatum is he has to erase his little black book before she's. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's so yeah, childish the and little ridiculous. Black playlist. Yep. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, oh, I like that. Um, yeah, for the digital age. Um, I don't even think we need to talk about Clive Owen because he's not given enough here to do to do anything other than be the like that's ridiculous most cliched yes. villain you've ever seen. And the cameo by Ethan Hawke. I mean, come on. It was yeah. ridiculous. Like, is Ethan Hawke just a good friend with Basson? And and so he's like, sure, I'll do it for like, you know, the three hours that you need me to be there. Oh you know, God. I mean, to me, if you can get Ethan Hawke to be in your movie, you get Ethan Hawke to be in your movie. And <laughs> I mean, when he came on the screen, I was like, oh, thank God. Someone who I can tolerate for a few minutes. <laughs> with his nose ring. But yeah. That was that was that was definitely a highlight of the movie for me. I have to say, it was a highlight of the movie for me too because I'm right there with you. I was like, oh, it's Ethan Hawke, but then he's like, oh, oh he has this most ridiculous role ever. Um, he's apparently like an evil pimp. So bad. But he can sell it. He can oh, totally he did sell, sell it. it. I, I mean, he may have been the best actor in the movie. Sadly, okay. Enough. You know who huh. I think who the best actor, the performance that I enjoyed in this movie is probably some complete nobody. Uh, I certainly didn't recognize the name. I don't even remember the character's name. It's the guy in the command center that once Clive Owen is taken away. Oh yeah, that yes, dude yes, is I good. I don't remember his name either. He delivered a good yeah, performance. He's like the second in command, yes. the general or something. Yeah, he gave a good performance. He was like the yeah, best he was performance. Actually, he was actually really convincing. Yes. Like he was he was he was the only person I felt like in the entire movie who who acted like this was a real thing. Right. There and was really because yeah. of it. I bought his performance. Yes. Yeah. Uh, maybe too, because his, his dialogue didn't seem so stupid either. <laughs> like he actually had decent dialogue. Um, The last person I guess we should probably talk about is Rihanna because she's in this movie as uh, Bubble, Bubble. uh, this shape-shifting entertainer, which I have to say, when you're talking about like the visual feast imagination thing that they do, that was really cool. And And part of that had been in the trailer, but I 
I kind of really enjoyed her her character moments. I thought she was really fun. She did a great job, and and she turned out to be this this kind of character you don't think you'd care about at all. But you know, by the time she dies, you're like, oh man, she's gone. That kind of sucks. I I did. I thought it was a a really cool idea, and I thought it was well represented on screen. I think I maybe liked her character moments a little bit less than you. Um, I mean, to be honest, I think I liked her stuff better than Ethan Hawke's. Uh, you know, <laughs> sorry, but he just didn't work for me at all. Um, but yeah, I, I thought she did all right, actually. I thought she did all right. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. I mean, that that is like sort of an interesting thing about this movie is it's very episodic. It almost feels like a bunch of issues of a comic book strung together, and you see like these sort of like mini arcs um, where they encounter various characters or various situations. And those individual, like, mini-arcs, I think, work pretty well. Like, whether the, it's the scene at the big market or the scene where, you know, the aliens want to, you know, eat uh, Cara Delevingne's brains or the scene where, you know, Rihanna is, is, you know, doing her thing or whatever. Like, each of those things individually, I think, is fine. It's like when you put them all together, it's kind of like, wow, there's a lot going on in this movie that doesn't need to be going on. And as far as like that, that's concerned, like I really did think that the Rihanna stuff was good. And I, you know, in addition to it being like very cool visually, I totally agree with you, Matt, that like I actually felt sort of like emotionally invested in this character and spoilers when, you know, she gets killed. I, I really did feel for that for her in that moment, you know? That that's probably the the thing in the movie which worked the absolute best for me was that sort of like story arc. Who would have thought going into this movie you would have thought, man, it's a Rihanna joint and she was the one I really cared about. <laughs> like I, I, I mean I, I know that, I that honestly doesn't surprise me, you know. I, I, I don't know. I, I think that, that she's you know, I mean you just see her like I mean, just look at her music videos or whatever. I mean, she's got like a really strong presence and, you know, is obviously an extremely good performer. So that that it really wasn't at all surprising to me um, that 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 sequence was the best in the movie. So did anyone else get uh, Indiana Jones vibe off the brain eating scene? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I felt like there were so many things in this film that that maybe it's my age and maybe I'm the same age as Luke Besson. I don't know, but all these callbacks to eighties movies for me, um, references. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It. I mean, yeah, he certainly, I mean, he comes from that era of filmmaking. Like he was, you know, and essentially, essentially a contemporary with Spielberg back when Besson was at his prime, you know, and I guess it makes sense that he's, well, I mean, obviously, he's sort of like embraced modern technology and everything and sort of like pushed, you know, filmmaking forward. I think that his roots are definitely in that sort of era. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I had never thought of that, but I can totally see what you're saying. That that, that definitely makes sense. You know? Yeah, I like the uh, the robots. What were they called? The I want to say Kazon, but that's not right. The big black romance with the triangular faces that that. Let's just yeah, call them Kazon. Yeah, that were, works. For yeah, me. they were pretty let's, cool. Let's go with it. Let's <laughs> yeah. with I liked it. those guys a, a lot, and I liked the the three little guys yes. with the wings. Yes. 
which reminded yeah. me of Ferengi for some reason. But um, so I will say it's very funny. Uh, in the back of Empire of a Thousand Planets, the comic, there's a section that has it's the very back of the issue, and it has a section about um that and Star Wars, and uh, it it's showing you all of the ways in which this influenced George Lucas. Um, and it shows you his ship, oh. uh, which, if you look at from behind, looks very similar to the Millennium Falcon. Uh, there is a scene from um, one of the issues where Laureline is in a bikini, a metal bikini, very similar to Leia. Uh, Empire of a Thousand Planets has um, him put in this like carbonite and oh. uh, like a block just like Han. Uh, the Empire of a Thousand Planets also has a masked villain that's similar to Darth Vader. Uh, it also has a um, villain person that has a really like deformed face that looks just like Anakin from Episode 3. Uh, and then one of their issues, uh, Ambassador of the Shadows, which is those characters that you're referencing, is, um, you know, obviously what Watto looks like, basically, oh. from... Uh, Episode one. So uh, that is one of the things that is very interesting as you can see the influences that George had from the actual comics. And now you're, you know, know, some of the things you might see references, you know, like a Spielberg or Lucas uh, in their work. So it's just kind of this weird circle that's been created. Yeah. All of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, hopefully it's better than Battlestar Galactica. So That's not um, a possibility. Or I love giving is, Mike a hard time yeah. about that. Oh, I love I it. Um, what the, I do wait, love what are, which, one. Which, which one are we? Are there uh, original? Matt does not realize I, talk, that Battlestar Galactica is a masterpiece. Yeah, and, we're, you know, uh, wait, wait, we're referencing the newest version of Battlestar Galactica. Oh, BSG? And yeah, yeah. Oh, you and me, and Mike. Like we'll take first... him out. It's a masterpiece, yeah. Matt. Right. I, I love All the right. first High two five. seasons. The last <laughs> two seasons are not as good. But that's a whole other discussion. Um, I wanted to ask you guys about the story because I wanted, and I want to divorce the story from the script because I, I feel like the actual story idea here, the kind of story thread, is a really interesting one. And I felt like the story itself if it had been done in a maybe more focused way would have, uh, and maybe a little bit more serious way, or they had just gone totally silly either way, just pick a, pick a way to go. But I feel like this story, if you just focus it a little bit better, um, was actually good because the whole story is, is that Clive Owens Admiral was at a war with another species um, and they're over the, the planet called Mole, where, which we talked about has the, this beautiful, uh, these beautiful people. And he unleashes a weapon during this battle, even though he knows this planet's inhabited and it will destroy that planet. And now his whole goal is to cover up his genocide. And basically it's kind of interesting because, uh, they even referenced that, over six million of these people died. So it, 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 it gives you the feeling like he's committed a holocaust of these people. Um, and now he's trying to cover it up so that nobody knows it's happened. And 
I just I thought that's a great story. You know, this whole idea of like trying to cover up history and and what happens when we don't learn from it because they almost commit the genocide again because they haven't been able to learn from the history because we've been hiding it and all that stuff was great. It's just so poorly executed that it you know by the time you get there you're kind of checked out i think yeah it doesn't feel important i it it exactly that for me it doesn't feel important just like the 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 notion of of what valerian and laureline are trying to prevent you know that there's this bomb that's been planted within the thing like all of that doesn't feel you feel no urgency about it like there's no pressure there's no uh, pacing in, in the film that that made me like oh my god you know the thing's gonna blow up and boy they'd better hurry I, there there just wasn't any sense of urgency in the film at all <laughs> yeah i mean that that plot you know when you take it out and you sort of examine it on its own it is you know a, a really solid sort of idea and obviously has a lot of uh interesting you know themes and stuff which we can apply to you know the world that we're living in and which is what all good science fiction does but it feels like such a tacked on secondary thing to all of this stuff which it's leading up to it which has nothing at all to do with it you know and there's just so much you know shoe leather or whatever you want to call it that it just gets lost. And, you know, like you're saying, by the time we get to the end, like, I mean, I was totally checked out. Like, I mean, I'm like, you know, Clive Owen shows back up and I'm like, oh, thank God, this thing is almost over. And then there's the one last beat and I'm like, really? Because I need to go to the bathroom. This movie is long, you know? This movie's a half hour longer than Dunkirk, which I hate it when people do that and I'm, I'm guilty of just doing that, but whatever. You know, it's like... Come on, guys, let's let's get to it, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's completely lost. It's completely buried under this this pile of garbage. I mean, it's it's buried at the heart of a thousand planets. And by the time you <laughs> well dig all those up, you just don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're absolutely right, Mike. The thing that I was frustrated was. Is by the moment I understood the story, like the you you both know me, and for any movie, I'm always trying to. What is the theme here? What are we going for? What's what, the what's lesson? The big, what's the big idea mm-hmm. of this film? And when we got to the big idea, I was like, oh, that's good. And then I was like, but it's covered in crap, <laughs> and it was just so frustrating because by the time I got there, that was not enough to redeem this movie. Because it just, and actually, honestly, it reminded me um, just recently in my other show, Cinema Stories, we did uh, the new Beauty and the Beast. And there were so many great themes we could talk about in the movie, but it was covered in such an awful film that I was, I I could applaud the, the themes, but I couldn't applaud the film. And I can applaud the, the amount of themes that are here that I really, I think we I could talk a lot about, but I don't really want to because it's not worth it. Uh, because the movie itself doesn't make it important, like you said, Alice. That there's no urgency, you know, when you finally figure out what the big plot is, um, and it it doesn't feel like that big <gasps> reveal moment. It just kind of feels like, oh, we're going here now, like, and we've almost been so silly that this needed, I think, maybe a more serious tone to make this theme bigger and. So interesting, uh, just a little behind the scenes. Um, 
Luc Besson, when he is doing Fifth Element, he actually hired the Valerian illustrator uh, to work on the film with him. And he asked him, why are you working on this film? Uh, I just bleeped myself. Uh, Why don't you do Valerian? And um, Besson thought that that was kind of impossible. And once he saw Avatar, he really wanted to do Valerian. Um, he said he thought James Cameron had pushed the levels so high, it made him believe his script wasn't good enough, which makes me wonder, did he really see Avatar? Because the script is awful there. So he rewrote his script, which surprised me to learn that he rewrote his script and this is what we still came out with. So I'm a little worried. And so what it makes me think is, in the end, Luc Besson is a fantastic director in the sense of visual storytelling. He needs to stop writing his own scripts. But he's, in recent years, he's sort of like transitioned into being like a writer-producer and letting other people direct his movies. In fact, a lot of the people in that opening sequence are his like stable of directors, um, which I think is pretty cool. But like you look at like the script for, you know, say like uh, Taken or... um, Yeah, which uh, is not good. District B-13 or whatever, you know, I mean like those things like... Those are pretty, pretty solid scripts. I mean, they're not all winners, but I think that he is a pretty solid writer. I think here maybe he had so many ideas that he was trying to cram into this thing. Yeah, that's right? like a good if it's point. about a guy whose wife is killed and whose daughter is kidnapped, you know, it's like this is a manageable level for which he can, you know, as long as he's got Liam Neeson, he's good to go. But when you try to include <laughs> Liam Neeson. And Cara Delevingne and Rucker Hauer with an earring and Clive Owen and all maybe you should have those had crazy Neeson aliens. Be Clive Owen's part, then it maybe awesome. would have come together better. Maybe I, I I would I would be into that. <laughs> well, he's already. Oh. I, I mean, he's already booked. I, I don't know that they would ever get made. Now I think it probably depends on the foreign market, which could really turn things around for him. Uh, it feels weird that I'm saying yeah, the that. The U.S. market ain't going to do it. Not for the U.S. market, this but he's already he, no. he's already got two and three <laughs> planned. So uh, I mean, I can't. I, it is really hard for me to imagine what two and three are about. Whether or not he could save it in two and three, like I, it's. So are these going to become his avatars that he keeps talking about the fact that he's going to make, but, but it, never it never actually act- happens? I don't know. Yeah, no, they're not because unlike Avatar, which made more money than any other movie ever, these things made like three bucks. Like I think well, we saw true. them. The three yeah, of us saw them, true. and nobody else. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, so. and I, I do have to say, um. We talked about this before the show, and you know there was a mom with his her son, and I I was behind them as we were walking out, and she was like, "Well, what'd you think?" And he was like, "Oh, that was really good." And she's like, "Yeah, that was pretty good." And so you know, I mean, it's it's not as though there aren't people who didn't like the film or enjoyed it. Um, I do kind of think that in the end, uh, that the movie is on that like ten year old level of enjoyment. And and that is about it because it never transcends to to kind of bring you anywhere else, and that is unfortunate because, as we talked about, I think the story has something that it could have been really interesting. It could have had something big to say, um, you know, kind of a timeless truth that it could have uh, played with, and and yet it's kind of I don't know, just it it's willing to be mediocre sci-fi in the end i am very very curious to see how it does 
in other markets other than the U.S. market? I am very curious. See, my yeah. my son. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, we went to see it with a group of people, uh, mostly women, one gentleman. Uh, and when the movie was over, I wanted to make sure I asked my son first before our, anybody else gave their opinion because sometimes kids, you know, won't share their honest opinion if all the adults, you know, say, oh, it was great or whatever. So I, I looked at him and he's struggling. And I can tell like he's he's trying to figure out how to be polite. And so finally I looked at him <laughs> and I was like, oh, sweetie, I, I didn't like the film. And he was like, oh, my God, mom, it was awful. It was so bad. <laughs> so well, let's just put it this way. So this movie domestically, as we're recording now on the 31st of July in 2017, uh, it also came out the same weekend that Dunkirk did. Bad choice to yeah. go against Chris Nolan. Um, domestically, it's made $30 million. Uh, it, foreign, it's made $29 million. So the right now, the foreign market isn't as good as the U.S. market, which is a really bad... I mean, that that's just really bad for this movie. How long so is it? Who knows if it's opened everywhere right. uh, in the world because they can have, you know, delayed release times around the world, but still doesn't doesn't really bode well for this film. Um, I don't know. I, we've talked a lot about the movie. There's been some things we've liked. There's uh, and, and I think, you know, uh, we tried to be fair and we, we definitely praise the things that we really did like and really did work for the movie. And, and you know, we're honest in the things that don't. And, and uh, we're not tearing anyone down or anything. It's just it's a disappointment because I, I think by the end we all saw where things could have been better and then they weren't. And it's like, oh, that's frustrating. So, uh, Mike, uh, where would, what would you rate this one, do you think? Um, I guess on a four-star scale, I would give it two stars. What about you, Alice? I would give it two bad 80s outfits out of five. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, And I I think I'm right there with you guys. Uh, This is two and a half out of five really bad proposals. (laughs) Sorry, I I wasn't creative with the whole thing. No, 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 you don't have to be creative. I totally forgot. I'm sorry, my bad. It's okay, Mike. (laughs) It's, It's totally okay. I mean, this movie doesn't really inspire you to want to be creative in that way so i get it um <laughs> i i had to think long and hard about what i was going to say there so i've um, been thinking about the whole time we've been recording what i'm gonna say uh <laughs> so and it's i i think what's unfortunate i is, give it is two that, out of a thousand planets oh, there you go well I done like sir it. well done <laughs> that's good i wish that this movie had been better so it could be more successful so we would get more stuff like this I want more outlandish, crazy, great, you know, different types of films, especially in sci-fi. You know, um, we got lucky last year where um, something like Arrival came out and just kind of blew your mind and was such a great film. I kind of wish that something like this or even a Jupiter Ascending like Mike we talked about a few years ago just would have been a thing that really caught on and people really liked so it could open up the genre again to something that isn't just Star Wars or Star Trek yeah. or something like that. I'm kind of tired of the whole fascination with Grim Dark, so I wish it would have embraced its funny bone or something because I'm, I'm kind of tired of everything being gloomy and depressing and horrible. Yeah, yeah, I get that completely. I think you're absolutely right, Alice. What if it had just been being serious when it needed to be but also being fun at the same time? Because you could do both. 
Uh, and this one just couldn't find that line, I don't think. So uh, really glad that we got a chance to talk about it. I still had an enjoyable time in the theater. I, I saw it in 3D. The 3D was fun and beautiful and, and stuff popping, you know, out on the screen. And it was great. But, you know, um, not not the best movie. So I'll be interested to see if anybody else has seen it on the Babel Conference and what they think. Uh, and uh, you can meet us over there, of course, as we talked about there at the beginning. And I really want to thank our associate producers through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. They support this show and they make it possible for us to be able to talk about this stuff for you each and every week. And not only support the 602 Club, but the entire network. Uh, it's a big network. We have so much going on. Of course, with Star Trek Discovery come out, we have a brand new show on the network. So, there is so much happening. We definitely need your support as listener to make sure that all of this keeps coming to you ad-free and that the quality bring it to you. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can help us as a network keep producing great content for you each and every week. Um, it, it just takes a lot of money to do this and, and we do need your support. So I encourage you, go over there, see how you can make that happen. Every little bit helps. Uh, and again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Alice, loved having you back here to talk about Valerian and actually you're going to be back next week to talk about the Dark yes, Tower. So uh, two weeks in a row, let everybody know where they can find you if they want to... Um, Maybe lament a little bit online that uh, Valerian wasn't a better film. <laughs> well, they, of course, can find me over at the Babel Conference because I, I always try and chime in, uh, certainly on at least on the episodes that I've participated in. Uh, if they want to find me elsewhere on the interwebs, uh, the best thing to do is to search for A-L-C-B-K-R. Uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to next week. We'll see, we'll see how grimdark that one is. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really interesting because I, I actually read the first novel in the series to kind of get a taste for, so yeah, and I'm interested to dive into that one. Um, Mike, you are like a podcaster about town. You have so much going on, so let everybody know where they can find you and all of the other shows that you do, uh, the plethora of other shows that you do. Too many, too many. I'm trying to shed some shows, but we'll see how that goes. You can find me on... Uh, <laughs> but you just keep adding more. Like, every time, like, you, like you'll like you shed one, and then I'll hear, oh, Mike's got a new show. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a problem. But uh, I, you can find me on thenerdparty.com doing Great Shot Kid, where uh, we talk about the people who make Star Wars. And you can also find me on commentarytrackstars.com doing Commentary Track Stars. We do audio commentaries for movies and various other things. You can also find me on TalkFilmSociety.com doing a show called Soderbergh 2828 where we look at all of Steven Soderbergh's movies leading up to Logan Lucky, which comes out in just a couple of weeks. I can't wait. Oh, it's going to be amazing. He's the best. He's the absolute best. And then you can also find me right here on Trek.fm doing uh, Stage 9, where, hey, next week we're going to be talking about Dark Tower. And uh, also on a new show called The Edge, which is all about Star Trek Discovery. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. Well, if Mike's not already on The Edge with all of those shows that he does, um, you can find me on Twitter trying to talk him off The Edge uh, at 
Matt Rushing02. I'm on Instagram at mrushing. You can find me here on the network also doing the orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And of course, uh, Star Wars, the 602 Club collection that collects all the Star Wars episodes that we do here in the 602 Club. I am also on the Nerd Party Network with a great guy that Mike knows very well, John Mills, talking about Star Wars. It's called Aggressive Negotiations. You're going to want to check it out. We have a blast on that show. We've had a great time recently talking about some really fun things like Forces of Destiny, uh, the Rogue One soundtrack, and so much more. So make sure you check it out. Uh, and you can also find me uh, doing another show there with Drea Kaufman talking about Harry Potter. As we're recording today, it's Harry Potter's birthday. So happy birthday, Harry Potter. And make sure you go check out Outpost as we walk through each and every chapter of the series. We're about finished with the Chamber of Secrets at this point. So I, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And then I have one more show, and that is I mentioned on on the, the episode. Uh, got a little tongue-tied. Cinema Stories. Uh, I'm talking about uh, film through the lens of faith with my good friend Courtney, and so make sure that you check that out. You can find all of those shows and any of our shows here uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Can I just say it seems like you guys must not have children. We don't. Because we don't. Got, I couldn't do cat. any of those things because <laughs> I've got other responsibilities, okay? <laughs> I'd love to be that's fair. I'd love to be doing all that stuff, but I don't have time. Oh, <laughs> that's fair. Well, that's yes, it's it's very true. No kids yet. So, um we'll see what happens if that ever happens. So, but thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now you're here.